foreign service is in a in a kind of a crisis at the moment. Morale in the State Department is at an all-time low. There's so few African Americans in leadership, so few women in leadership at the State Department. Just at the moment, when the country is facing all these diplomatic challenges. Under the Trump administration, the State Department took a public hammering. Funding cuts of up to a third were proposed. Diversity in top positions was practically non-existent. More than a third of top-tier positions went vacant or were filled by acting officials, and 7% of the department's staff left in one year. Uh, you know, we do need more people and more money with the State Department. You really have to go back to 1924. You have to go back to when the original Foreign Service Act was written. But these issues the State Department faced and are facing have roots that predate the Trump administration. This is Global Insights by Network 2020. Today, we revisit an episode that was recorded on January 6th, 2021, that in more ways than one is more relevant today than it was two years ago. What should be the mission and mandate of U.S. diplomacy for the coming decades? And how can reforms help the State Department achieve that vision? In this episode, we were joined by retired Ambassador Marcy Reese, who served for 37 years in diplomatic service, Elizabeth Shackelford, non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute, and former U.S. diplomat Christopher Richardson. Moderating the discussion is Courtney Doggart, president of Network 2020. So welcome to the State of the State Department, Reforming U.S. Diplomacy. It is uh, quite quite a hot topic, and I actually want to just read a quick, a quick excerpt from the report that Ambassador Reese, one of our panelists, wrote, um, just so that we all can set the stage for today's conversation. Um, and in this, in this excellent report, a U.S. diplomatic service for the 21st century. She writes, many of the most serious challenges the United States will face in 2021 and beyond will require our diplomats to take the lead. These include the return of great power competition, leading a global response to the pandemic and its consequences, supporting American companies overseas during a devastating recession, mounting a major effort on climate change, negotiating an end to the Afghan and Iraq wars, and helping American citizens in every corner of the world who need the support of their government. Morale in the State Department, however, is at an all-time low, and efforts to promote greater racial and ethnic diversity have failed just when the country needs women and men of all backgrounds as our primary link to nearly every country in the world. There are challenges to be met inside the Foreign Service, including an honest self-assessment of the service's internal culture as well. So that sets the stage for a very hot topic today. So we have three top-notch panelists. Just to kick off, um, I'd like to start uh, with you, Ambassador Reese, um, because the, the Future of Diplomacy project that you run at Harvard, they recently published this report from which I just read an excerpt. Um, and it's one of several initiatives that, that we're hearing about recently that are examining ways to rethink the mission and mandate of the State Department. And I was wondering, could you 
put all of this in context for us? Why, why are all of these initiatives happening now? Well, uh, as, your, as the excerpt that you, that you read shows, the Foreign Service is in a, in a kind of a crisis at the moment. It lacks funding, uh, support, training, and, and educational opportunities for the, for the members of the Foreign Service just at the moment when the country is facing all these diplomatic challenges, which you listed. Historically, the change has come to the Foreign Service at uh, times of big historic change. For example, the first Foreign Service Act came in 1924 at the end of World War One, when it became evident that uh, the United States needed more diplomatic heft. Uh, then again, after World War II, same thing, uh, where there was a general feeling that that the Foreign Service wasn't uh, adequate, wasn't big enough, didn't have, uh, didn't have enough heft to meet the challenges that the United States was facing in the world. And then we had another, another act in 1980 uh, at the end of the Vietnam era. So that's, that's 40 years ago and, and the world has changed a lot since then. So, th so that's another reason. We have some very serious fundamental problems uh, in the Foreign Service the lack of diversity, which you mentioned, politicization. The service is a, um, is a nonpartisan service, just the way the military is nonpartisan or the intelligence community. But over time, we've seen, and this is, this is not just a problem of the current administration, but uh, we have seen that uh, successive administrations have appointed people, have uh, put, political appointees in key positions deeper and deeper into the Foreign Service. So today there is not one single career uh, official serving as a, um, a confirmed assistant secretary, which is really the, the sort of the real, the real policy point uh, in the State Department. Uh, and finally, there isn't, there's really inadequate support for professionalization in the Foreign Service just at the moment when we have all kinds of challenges that require special technical uh, expertise. So, and we have many new challenges in the world which, have, uh, which require diplomatic, not military solutions. So for all of those reasons, I think this is, this is a moment when people feel that the, that the State Department and especially the Foreign Service uh, needs to be rebuilt and modernized. And just just to follow up on that a little bit, um, you mentioned the the politicization of the service. Is that something that uh, we're how how has something like that been allowed to happen where it doesn't necessarily happen in other parts of government service like the military? Why is it that that it that it was able to happen within the diplomatic service? Well, quite honestly, um, the American Foreign Service has had political appointees serving as ambassadors since the 19th century. But what has happened over time uh, is that the, the, the percentage of political appointees, I'm talking about the modern foreign service starting in the 20th century, that the, um, that the career foreign service, the percentage of the career foreign service, uh, the positions that are held by career people has diminished over, over time. This has been a, a, a sort of going in this direction. The usual was sort of 
for ambassadors was 25% political appointees and 75% for the Foreign Service. But I, I do want to pick up one point you made, which is that other foreign services do not do this. We are um, fairly unique in the world. There are a few other countries that have a handful of political appointees, but none who do it consistently the way we do. And if you think about this, does this make sense? Uh, I mean, would we, uh, would we have a diplomat uh, being the captain of an aircraft carrier? No, I don't think so. So, uh, so why, would we, um, why would we appoint people with no diplomatic background to be our ambassador? So, so we proposed actually something that we would phase in over time uh, uh, 10%, 90% uh, ratio. But um, then there are, in that's just ambassadors. Um, what we've seen is over time, there have been more and more political appointments uh, down into the policy arena in the State Department in Washington. Uh, appointments of undersecretaries, assistant secretaries, deputy assistant secretaries, and so on. The State Department has more political appointees than any other uh, Washington agent, Washington cabinet agency. And is that something that that a revised Foreign Service Act would be able to encode that 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 to limit the number of political appointees? Is that the mechanism in by which that would happen? Well, um, we would um, we would propose that we phase in. Uh, a proportion, a different proportion of ambassadors through, you know, over a period of five years, let's say. Um, I think one way to approach it would be a Foreign Service Act, uh, which is another, uh, which is another proposal that we've made is that we need a new Foreign Service Act uh, now. But essentially, particularly with ambassadors, it's the prerogative of the president. Uh, to nominate ambassadors. And I th think we would have to see uh, affirmative commitments from successive presidents in that regard. Thank you very much. Um, I, I have more questions for you, Ambassador, but, but we'll, we'll get back to you in a bit. Um, Lizzie, turning to you, your, your departure from the State Department in 2017 garnered a lot of attention, um, in part because of your very direct message to then Secretary of State Tillerson, and also in part because you really um, were a rising star in U.S. diplomacy. And you, you've since written a book that delves into the devolving state of U.S. foreign policy. How do you think State Department reform can effectively respond to the changing demands on diplomacy? Thank you very much, Courtney. I'd, I'd start out by saying that I agree with a lot of what Ambassador Reese has already raised in terms of um, you know, where, where the starting point is and where some of the, the challenges have begun. But um, one issue that I think is, which Ambassador Reese mentioned that I think is really critical is that we roll back from the militarization and military being in the lead in our foreign policy. And that requires some, you know, some, some kind of fundamental reform, but it also requires a real shift in our thinking about what are national security you know, priorities and, and how do we approach them. One thing that we've seen over the past couple of decades is um, you know, a, a shift towards the military really taking the lead, which 20 years ago might have you know, made sense in a context where we see our greatest threat as being you know, international terrorism and, and violence. But of course, today we're seeing something very different from that. And um, we're, we're on the back end, however, of a period of time where we've had this 
uh, cycle that's been reiterating itself, where the State Department didn't have the resources that it need to, needed to, to meet the threats at the time a couple of decades ago. And then, and so a lot of the tasks that should have gone to civilian-led foreign policy teams went to the military instead. Then you have the military doing these activities, so they continue to get tasked with them and resourced to do them. We saw a lot of this in terms of kind of nation-building efforts in Afghanistan and Iraq. But what I think a lot of Americans aren't aware of and others is that it trickles down through through all sorts of other elements of, of who's taking the lead and um, and how we're being resourced to do so. My last my last tour was in Somalia um, and that was a place where the diplomats were not even sufficiently resourced to go outside of the airport compound. What that meant in practice is that we had military, US military personnel who could travel around Mogadishu in the country and ended up getting dragged into all sorts of discussions with our counterparts in Somalia, with our civilian counterparts in Somalia. Um, and thereby they take the lead. They take the lead visibly because they're with the ones out in the communities and, and with the government, they take the lead in action. And that left us really um, not prepared and positioned to, to play a lead role. So um, in terms of you know how do we approach that reform. I think that we need to do it from, uh, you know, we do need more people and more money with the State Department, absolutely, and with our development colleagues as well. But that's not going to be enough without shifting um, our, our approach and having the State Department empowered to lead. And that means a lot of a lot of kind of technical you know, resource issues. As Ambassador Reese mentioned, we need the type of training and investment in our personnel in the State Department that you see in the military, which we do not have. But we also need, you know, the executive end um, and legislative branches to really kind of consider the the civilian side in the lead of what we're doing. Um, that makes sense. It's, it would have made sense over the past couple of decades. But as you look at what the national security threats are to us now, a global pandemic, climate change, uh, you know, other issues that you know, do not have military solutions, things that need to be negotiated in a globalized world, we need to have civilians in the lead of that, with the military supporting. What we need to do. Um, so I would say, you know, kind of wrapping that up into, um, you know, what it really means for how we reform and, and to to face these issues, you're you're going to need. I do think that we need some some legislative changes. A new form, uh, foreign service act is probably uh, really called for. Um, I think empowering the State Department does require depoliticizing it, which means, as Ambassador Reese mentioned, you know, reducing the number and the dominance of political appointees. This isn't just smart in terms of having people who are qualified to do these jobs, um, but it's also smart in terms of having a longer term vision. If you're appointed by an administration that may or may not be there in four years, you're looking for wins that are gonna happen in that time period and enough time to support that administration's reelection. You're not looking at people who are, who are understand what's been happening for the prior decade or two in a particular region or country and are looking ahead to how you build, um, you know, to improvements in that bilateral relationship um, over the next coming decade. So I think that's what you get with the, with the longer term view that professionals have. So I, I think in addition to limiting the numbers and percentage that we have of appointees, um, political appointees, I think that we should look at some qualifications. You know, if you have these, uh, for those who don't know, they're Schedule C appointments or the types of political appointees that go all the way down through the ranks in the State Department. There should be some basic criteria of experience for a lot of these roles. Um, so that you can't simply fill it with a lot of folks who worked hard in a campaign, for example. You know, there's a place for that, but I don't think it's necessarily, you know, in a special envoy's office dealing with something that you might not know about. So, I would say, uh, you know, we need to look at it holistically. We need to look at it in terms of our attitude uh, over how we treat who's really running the show, 
and it and we need to sufficiently resource and train and um, you know give give the State Department what it needs to succeed so that what we don't see is a very well resourced military you know Pentagon uh, leaning in in the future to take over if the State Department can't meet these very real global challenges. Thank you. Yeah, and and that's an excellent point, and I think it's one that's not um, that that's made not just by diplomats, but we one of our one of our favorite events as we we bring the military fellows from the Council on Foreign Relations to speak with Network Twenty Twenty, and and they would say the same exact thing. They're saying, why why are we the ones who are out there doing this diplomatic work? That's not what we're trained to do. But you know, when you're looking at budgets and when you're looking at that 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 constant push and pull in within the embassy of keeping their people secure but also enabling them to do the work. I think it gets, it gets quite tricky, but um, yeah, excellent point. Um, so uh, turning to you, Chris, um, one area of a reimagined State Department is the urgent need to develop a diplomatic corps that is reflective of the US population. And you, you have really been a leading voice among those calling for meaningful diversity changes in US diplomacy. Um, but as we've spoken about, these diversity initiatives, you know, that this isn't a new thing. Um, so how come they haven't taken hold yet? And what would really effective change look like? Thank you, Courtney. And uh, thank you, Ambassador Reese. Thank you, Elizabeth. Um, it's such an honor to be on this panel. Um, I think to understand why the State Department still struggles with diversity, why it still struggles with this fact that so many, um, there's so few African-Americans in leadership, so few women in leadership at the State Department, you really have to go back to 1924. You have to go back to when the original Foreign Service Act was written. So when that was written uh, to professionalize the Foreign Service, the first African-American to take the test and pass the test, uh, Clifton Wharton, after he actually passed the test, the reaction of the State Department wasn't one of joy. It was one of horror. Uh, the director of the Foreign Service, Joseph Grew, met with the leadership of the State Department, and they sat around a table and said, how can we keep black people, women, and naturalized Americans out? How can we make sure it never happens again? Because they, didn't even, they weren't even sure that Clifton was a black man. And the minute they found out he was black, they actually sat down and put it in minutes. How do we keep these people out? They went to the president of the United States and they asked the president of the United States, please pass an executive order keeping black people, women, and naturalized Americans out of the foreign service. And when President Coolidge said no, they said fine, and they literally spent 20, 30 years working at the highest levels of the State Department to deliberately and systematically keep out people who weren't white men. And so after Clifton Wharton passed, not another African-American would be allowed in the State Department or allowed in the Foreign Service for 20 years after he passed, right? And so what you have is that, in, and even after that period in 1950s and 60s, you had a system that used the security clearance process, used oral exams, that was really hostile to women and minorities, a system that really didn't open up, but really were forced to open up because of lawsuits and because of outside interaction by, by Congress and by different various groups. And so when you have a system that was really built and designed and implemented in a way that was deliberate and intentional for 20, 30 years to keep people such as myself and Ambassador Reese and Elizabeth out of power, you're not going to overturn something like that with band-aids and piecemeal actions. And that's what we're seeing now. Um, we're seeing this sense of like, oh, well, if we just put a band-aid here, if we just let in more of them, that's, that's what we're looking for. But no, we really need to reimagine and rethink how we deal with diversity. 
Um, it can't be something that's ancillary to diplomacy. It is diplomacy. Having a State Department that looks and feels like the United States is critical for our foreign policy initiatives, and it's critical to what we're trying to do as a country. It can't be something that, you know, it's something, like right now, it feels very much like it's something that is on the checklist box of things that we need to do. It's like between re-engaging with Iran, maybe letting some black people in and women in, and then we're gonna get down there with Cuba as well, no. Like if you don't, if your State Department doesn't look like America and doesn't reflect America, other people notice these things too. Other countries notice these things too. And so, you know, in 1953, there was a congressional report and investigation into how to make the State Department more diverse. In 1962, President Kennedy hosted at the State Department uh, equal opportunities for African Americans and women. How do we let them in? Um, in 1986, George Fultz said that we have to have a State Department that reflects the view of America. Um, in 1970s and 1960s, there was a program set up by the Ford Foundation, the State Department, that was to encourage more minorities to come into it. Um, Dean Russ really made it his effort in at least the early 60s to let more African-Americans into the State Department. And what you see over time is just fits and starts where people really are engaged on this issue. And they kind of give up because they have other things to do. You know, it's a sunny day. Like, there's lots of reasons why people just lose the, the value in fighting for a State Department that looks like America. But ultimately, look, I just finished George Packer's book on Richard Holbrook. Uh, Richard Holbrook was a dynamite diplomat, served in the State Department for 40 years. I don't think I saw a single Black person in that book until about page five or 600. I didn't see a single woman who meant anything to this man till about page five or 600, right? And so if I could talk to Anthony Blinken, or if I could talk to anybody who's in charge of the State Department, I would ask them, if I wrote a 700-page biography of your life, what would, what would be the first woman or Black person who would appear in your book? What would be the first time diversity would be an issue in your book? Because I've read books about Richard Holbrook, I've read books about Dean Acheson, I've read books about Henry Kissinger, I've read books about Dean Rusk, and there are, there's no discussion of diversity, there's no discussion of the need for diversity. Like, how do you manage to live in this country in a powerful position and have black people and women just don't exist to you and your existence? Because that's not true of the American experience. And that's not true of what foreign countries look at and think about when they talk to us and see us as people, right? So when I served overseas, um, I would often talk to white officers who, you know, they, they would sit there and they could understand and they have better knowledge about every opposition group and every intricate part, like the price of cassava beans, right, in some of these countries. But if you ask them about George Floyd, if you ask them about Sandra Bland, if you ask them about the things that are going on in their own country, the foreigners seem to have more education about what was going on in America than the Americans did do. And so I think that if we're going to reimagine the State Department, um, it really has to start at the top. And it has to have people who don't see this as just another checkbox and another thing that we need to do. It has to be something that is very much fundamental um, in changing the State Department. Um, and if the State Department is to be serious, they have to look like America. That's something the military figured out long ago. Um, and I think that's something the State Department needs to work on as well. Thank you. And, and you know, as someone who worked in public diplomacy, I 100% agree. I mean, we can't have a diplomatic core that isn't reflective of the United States when we're sending these messages <laughs> of diversity and then we're not walking the walk at all. 
Um, so it, it's, it's critically important. And so it sounds like for you, meaningful change really needs to come, it needs to be embedded from the top and it needs to be a cultural change and not just something that's written down somewhere, but, but that is led, led from, from the top. Is that correct? Right. And it has to be consistent. It, you know, the people who spent 20, 30 years building this structure, they were motivated and dedicated to keeping out Blacks, women, and minorities, mm -hmm. right? So we have to be just as dedicated. And think about this in 20, 30 years. When Joseph Brew, when the ambassador, when, when President Coolidge said, no, I'm not going to help you with this, basically what Joseph Brew and the leadership of the State Department said is fine. We're going to spend 20, 30 years working on this, and we're going to keep them out. And we have to have that same kind of passion on this issue and the same kind of commitment to letting people in as the people, as our predecessors were, to keeping people out. Mm -hmm. Hi, Global Insight fans. We can't do this without you. As a non-profit organization, Network 2020 relies on the generosity of listeners like yourself. If you enjoy our thought-provoking discussions, we ask you to consider making a donation at network2020.org. Your support ensures we keep delivering the content you love. From all of us, thank you. Um, uh, sort of on the flip side of that coin about about the diplomatic service looking like the United States, I think one one element that that we don't often talk about is the role that the diplomatic service plays in the perception within the United States public. And and it, it's hard to believe, but about a year ago when the impeachment trials were going on, I was actually getting a lot of um, a lot of emails from from people who knew that I had been in the Foreign Service briefly, and they were so impressed with um, Ambassadors Taylor and Yovanovitch, and, and were saying how um, just how how they how they never knew that there was this level of um, dedication and professionalism, and they didn't know what diplomats did, and all of a sudden they 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 had a peek into that, and then of course COVID came along and um, and took everyone's attention away. But I'd love to just, you know, talk briefly about um, what the impact is about of not actively engaging with the U.S. public about its diplomacy, um, you know, particularly when we're saying that diplomacy needs to have a more valued position in, in, in government and in society. And, and how do you think we can rectify that? Um, and Ambassador Reese, I'll, I'll turn to you first and then I'll chime in with the others. Well, one of the topics that came up fairly frequently in our conversations with uh, former diplomats and uh, former leaders in the intelligence community and on the military side of things, uh, virtually all the groups we talked with, and we, we held 40 workshops in order to prepare the, the report that you saw, this topic uh, came up fairly fairly often that our diplomacy needs to be at, at its very basis and fundamentally connected to the American people. And of course, um, to the point about diversity, which is also a topic which came up very consistently in every single workshop and every meeting we had, um, being connected to the American people <laughs> means being connected to all of the American people. Uh, this is, um, 
there are ways to do this. And some of the things that we proposed in our, in our report, I think uh, would help with this. For example, when, one of the ways that we recruit for the State Department is through um, diplomatic advisors in uh, certain colleges and universities. And, and there we do put quite a bit of emphasis on diversity. But the, I, th I believe there's something like 18 of them out there, uh, which isn't very much if you look at the, uh, at the size of the United States. So um, what we have proposed is um, a more activist uh, recruitment policy that includes an ROTC-like program, like, uh, like the military has, where um, people learn about the Foreign Service uh, basically as undergraduates. We have some very excellent fellowship programs, which are for, but they're for graduate students. And a, and a lot of the advice that we got was, you need to start sooner. So if you had programs like that in more American colleges and universities, more people would hear about the Foreign Service and what we actually do. Uh, so that would be one way. And another thing that we proposed, this, this came up a little bit in, um, in what Elizabeth was was saying uh, was that we do need surge capacity. We need we need to be able to um, mobilize to deal with particular hotspots or crises in the world. And one way to do this would be to have a reserve corps, uh, the way the military has, and and that might have a reciprocal uh, effect. In fact, it should have a reciprocal effect where people who um, who are committed to uh, to the Foreign Service, let's say to some service two weeks a year or something like that, are more familiar with what the Foreign Service is and does because of their training and their acti activities, but also their communities would be more familiar with it from their contact with the reservists. So, so it, it should have a sort of a reciprocal effect, but it is, it is glaringly obvious that, um, that the American people, we are not sufficiently connected to the American people and that that needs to be attended to. Yeah, Lizzie, you wanna chime in? Yeah, just briefly add that you know, it goes in both directions because the American people don't understand what we do um, is, is one of the reasons that it's so hard for us to get you know initiatives and support and resources for the State Department and diplomacy through Congress because Congress responds to what its constituents care about. Its constituents in many parts of the country fully understand what the military does. They have relatives and friends and people in the military or they have military industries in their hometowns. They get jobs through things that support the military. So there's a strong constituency there. Um, you know, but it, it also reflects back to you know, whether or not the State Department and the folks who are on the front lines working on our diplomacy and our foreign policy really understand how that impacts Americans outside the Washington DC Beltway and you know New York and areas of international organizations. So you, you would have a lot of benefits to, uh, to really increasing the ties. And you know, I agree with you know, what Ambassador Reese said, you know, we, need, we have a couple of programs, but they are not big enough to reach the Americans we need. They're big enough to reach the Americans who are already predisposed to wanting to seek out foreign policy information, who are at Ivy League schools where you have ambassadors going to, you know, to be either residents or in later careers to, to teach, but you, you don't reach the communities that, um, that are not already connected to that very well. And that's one of the reasons we don't have a lot of diversity. I was born and raised in Jackson, Mississippi. 
I met the first diplomat and fully started to understand what it was when I was, I think, 24, 25. So I came into it later because it did not seem like it was an option to me. Um, and I, so I think that having that type of outreach, which we could do if we factored it in and valued it. We have things like hometown diplomat programs, which if you are a diplomat and you're interested and you're on home leave in your hometown, you can go and speak at a school or do something, but nobody gets credit for it. And frankly, you're, you're, it's, a, it's a high bar to cross to have that kind of participation when you're back home. It would be a really, like really low hanging fruit to find ways to facilitate that, give people credit in their kind of annual reviews for doing outreach to the American people, give them some resources. Say, did you wanna write a letter to the editor in your hometown about what, how this foreign policy impacts your state? We'll help you you know, write it and give you some resources and give you some connections for that. Really low hanging fruit. Again, it's, it's getting back to that cultural shift, that idea that part of what we do in our foreign policy is make help Americans understand why it's important. And in return, they will help resource us to do what we need to do overseas. And yeah, thanks, Chris. What would you like to add? Yeah. I'm just gonna add really quick. I think that also when something happens, um, I think that we need to prioritize making sure that people from the State Department are actually for, in the forefront of discussing it. So example, uh, when that minister got released in Turkey and he flew back to the United States and everyone's like, oh my God, I saw no one from consular who was speaking on this issue. And that was a huge thing that the State Department was involved in. Uh, so when Americans get released from jail, when Americans get saved overseas, when you hear these stories about Americans escaping from all these countries, um, we really need to find a way as a State Department to prioritize to make sure that diplomats are the ones who are on camera, who are talking about these issues, so that when people say, oh, so that's what a diplomat does, right? And so a diplomat is the one that's going to visit the American in jail. The diplomat's going to be the one that's going to help bring people back home. And so in the same way, when, when a military action happens, guess who do you see? You see a general on TV, right? We need to see more diplomats, I think, on TV. And I think that that's a way that we can educate the American public as well on what we do. Yeah, sure, it, sure. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. Go I was right going to say, no. absolutely, the military invests in its reputation in America. Um, in 2013 and 14, I was the consular officer on the ground in South Sudan when war broke out, and I was at the airport running our evacuations. Over the years, I have on four or five occasions seen military like shows and interviews on various programs about how they ran those evacuations. They flew the planes. And they did all these glossy videos about it and they look great doing it. Nothing from the State Department about how hard our team worked to, to get Americans to safety. Totally agree. We've got to invest in communicating that, Chris is right. Yeah, yeah. And, and the irony of that is that when you enter the Foreign Service, it's one of the fundamental things that they underscore with you is that your primary duty is to be there for American citizens overseas. And so getting that message the other way is, is extremely critical. Um, we have a lot of great questions coming in through Q&A, so I'd like to turn to them, and I'm going to do my best to try to reach as many as I can, and I might weave some of them together. And so to do that, I wanted to pick up on this idea of the reserve corps and also pull in a couple of inquiries we had about um, some of the, the currently unfilled positions and how, um, and, and apologies because there are, I have to scroll through a lot of questions here, um, but how, what, what, the, what the plan is to really get people into unfilled positions, but then also is there a plan for um, trying to bring back in people who may have left during the past four years at a, at a, in a, at a comparable level to, to where they were? And is, is that part of the discussions that you're hearing? 
Well, the if I could take a little uh, a little piece of this, the the last piece about um, bringing people back in, um, turns out to be people have strong feelings on both sides of that question. We mentioned in our report that if you had mid-level entry, which by the way was maybe one of the most controversial of our recommendations, our mm -hmm. managed, a carefully managed uh, mid-level entry program that that could possibly be used um, to bring some people back. Uh, but a very distinguished diplomat, Jeff Feltman, has just uh, published a long article uh, in which he is against that. So it is a uh, it is a controversial it is a controversial subject, and I expect that there's going to be quite a lot of talk about it. Could 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 you just elaborate a little bit on on, on what the what the pieces of controversy are? Or what, what well, some of the I critics are saying? For people who have made a career in the Foreign Service and have mm -hmm. started at the very bottom uh, doing their first consular tour and uh, worked their way up, they the feeling is that um, if you bring people back or bring people in at the mid-level, then their, um, their promotion opportunities, there are uh, chances to uh, to get the most attractive positions uh, would be less. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are people feel that they have served through good and bad times and um, they shouldn't be disadvantaged uh, by having stuck it out and uh, compared to people who have left. And so I think um, that's that, uh, that's basically the arguments. There are arguments on both sides here, and I think this will continue to be a topic that people will discuss. Mm -hmm. As as two as two um, mid level people who left, what do, do you have thoughts on this, <laughs> Chris or Lizzie? <laughs> Lizzie first. I was just going to say there there is a there is a method to come back in, and I, I know Chris is probably as well. It's got lots of emails from folks with the, the guidelines on how you return within five years as a, a foreign service officer. And there are some boxes you check and you get sent wherever they want to send you. So there, there are ways that people who have left the career foreign service can come back in. Um, but there are some big differences in, um, or there, there's some rifts in the culture. And I liken it um, to, as, as Chris and I have discussed before, um, when you're in a post-conflict situation overseas uh, and you have the folks who fled refugees and then come back years later to a peaceful country to kind of help rebuild, there is a tension between the people who left the country, became refugees, got citizenship elsewhere, got education elsewhere, and the people who, who fought the battle and stayed in the country during the crisis. Um, it's a very real tension that I've seen in post-conflict places you know, all across the globe, and many of us had. Have. The, the challenge is that there are things that people in both positions can bring to the table. And how do you find a way to, to be able to capitalize on the skills and the experience that everyone has without giving short shrift to the people who, you know, who might have, have sacrificed you know, other opportunities in order to stay, or to people who you know, have left and have moved forward in their careers and frankly don't want to come back to you know, kind of a stable position they were in several years ago. So it's going to be a real conflict for the State Department. I think it's going to be important that you know people who who return to the fray, um, you know, are are conscious and aware of the of the struggles that people who have been through a very morale crushing time at the State Department have. But I also hope that the people who are on the inside and have stuck it out 
we'll welcome you know anybody coming back in to help us build back the State Department because the the State Department that we have today is not the same one we had four years ago. It needs more resources and it needs more support. But uh, but we're going to have to manage that potential conflict. Yeah, and I would only add that you know I've. I've actually been very torn about this issue because um, a lot of my colleagues, former colleagues in the State Department say, well, you know, you didn't stay through the rough time, so why should, you know, you be able to come back? Or even the idea that, you know, I left the Foreign Service as like a three or whatever, and if I applied for a job that's a two, like, you know, that doesn't seem very fair. But I think that at the end of the day, we have to think about what's best um, for America and what's best for our, uh, our foreign policy apparatus. Um, the fact is, is that we are in desperate need of diplomats. We are in desperate need of doubling and, and, and really rebuilding our State Department. And as President Biden says, or President-elect Biden says, building it back better. Um, and if a surge of former officers is what it's going to take to, to get the State Department to where it needs to be, then so be it. That's what we need to do. And I think that we all have to realize that, you know, everyone in that kind of situation is is going to sacrifice. Um, it is it, it is one of those situations where you know some people will might be upset by it. Um, and even for the even for the officers coming in, it'll be a learning curve as well, um, and then a steep learning curve as well. And so, I think that it's something that we should definitely think about doing. But at the end of the day, my thinking is, especially on diversity, is just do something. All right. Like I think that the State Department's biggest problem is is that we talk and we talk and we talk ourselves out of doing anything. Because anything you propose is going to have like drawbacks. Anything you propose is going to have like controversy. And so the State Department, we just like to have a lot of committees and we talk about things to the point where we're just like, well, we've talked our way out of doing anything. Um, and so at the end of the day, if, if, it, if it works, great. If it doesn't work, keep trying. And if, it, and if the end of it still doesn't work, then try something new. But we have to show that commitment to doing more than just talking about this stuff. And I think that that idea of mid-levels hiring is a, is a way to demonstrate that we're going to do more than just talk about diversity and talk yeah. about change. Terrific. Th th thank you. Um, one more question just to wrap it up. And this is sort of our, our final thoughts question as well. Um, and so... You know, looking at looking at the geopolitical landscape, you know, for, for each of you who've been immersed in this idea of um, changing the, the Foreign Service and changing the U U.S. diplomacy, um, what are the what's the biggest thing on the horizon that that you think we need to be prepared for to be able to adapt to that we aren't currently able to in our in our system as it is? Lightning round. <laughs> so I'll do. I'll do really quick. The world is. All right, getting, Chris, you're up. The world is getting browner, and the Foreign Service is still pretty white. And if you don't have a Foreign Service that looks like America or even looks like the world, um, that is going to be our challenge for the 21st century, um, because people aren't going to take us as seriously. Um, especially when we talk about human rights, we talk about climate change, and we talk about these things to other countries. Mm -hmm. If we don't have people who look like America speaking to the rest of the world in an honest, ethical, and, and reasonable way, um, then we're going to have challenges. I'd add one, one more dimension that's quite different, which is um, that a lot of the challenges that we're facing in the world today have to do with either science or tech. <laughs> and um, we, uh, we, I think we really need to face that head on and uh, figure out how we have people and resources um, to give us the understanding that we need of those of those issues, uh, and and there are new horizons: Antarctica, the Arctic, mm -hmm. uh, space. So um, we really um, really need to look at how we acquire knowledge of those uh, 
of those things that um, can can adequately support our diplomacy in those mm -hmm. areas. Perfect, Lizzie. Well, I will wrap up by saying that one of the biggest challenges we are going to have, not just as our diplomats, but as a country, is is moving forward with more humility. We are not a hegemon that is all that is all powerful. We have proven over the last couple of decades that when we go it alone, we do not necessarily leave either our own country or other countries better off than we found them. Um, not only that, but you know, with the type, the the nature of the big national security threats that we are facing, things like climate change, things like pandemics, things like economic struggles that we're dealing with right now in the in the world, we cannot deal with those alone. We can certainly play a leadership role, and we should. But we do not have either the, the capacity or really the interest to be the ones who are trying to fix all of this on our own. And we've proven that we can't. So we need to go out there and be ready to play well with others, to, you know, to compromise where we need to, not on our principles, but maybe on you know, being the loudest voice in the room. You know, I think that in, in the, the aftermath of the Trump administration, it's going to be a really great time not to go back out and say, okay, ignore the last four years, we're here, we're back, we're, we're the leaders. I mean, I think we're gonna have to say, oh, that was something that could happen here and, and that could diminish our global position of leadership. That's something that was allowed to happen on our watch. We have a lot to learn for, from not only the strengths of other countries, but the mistakes that other countries mm -hmm. have made as well. And I think that too often we think that we are somehow immune to that. Well, I think what the last four years has certainly shown us, if not the past couple of decades, is that we are not immune to those problems and we need the help of our friends in the rest of the world, you know, not only to succeed for the world, but to see, succeed for us as, as a country as well. Thank you all for taking the time today. Um, thank the three of you for your for your service in the State Department and then also since leaving the State Department and putting your minds to really, really important questions and uh, have a wonderful rest of your day. Bye-bye. It's listeners like you who make Global Insights so special. Thank you for being a part of our journey. To stay connected, deepen your insights, and join our community. Visit us at network2020.org.